feature the scene. It's 7pm on Monday, the 5th of November, 2001 in the UK. The nights have long since drawn in, so it's dark and the air is crisp and cold. It's slightly damp from previous downfalls of rain in the day, but now it's dry. Despite the weather and uninviting darkness, unlike most British November nights, this one is filled with joy and laughter. With most people home from work, up and down the British Isles, bonfires are well underway in countless back gardens and communal areas, and the dark clear night sky is punctured and interspersed with the bright colours and loud bangs of fireworks going off to celebrate Guy Fawkes or bonfire nights. It's a night where most people look forward to, and also most people remember, not because they want to remember and celebrate a foil attempt to destroy the House of Parliament, but more because it's a time that they get to spend with their families and friends. Families get to create memories in their children's minds, and young couples, and old, have an excuse to hold each other close in a cold night and bond that little bit more. And hey, if you're single, it's an excuse to eat, drink, and be merry. And who doesn't need that from time to time? Welcome to this very first episode of Picture the Scene. My name's Andrew, and this is a brand new true crime podcast that aims to entertain and inform you about all things related to true crime. If you're listening to this, I'm pretty amazed. I'm not sure how people will find it, so I'm not sure how you found it, but please do check out the Picture the Scene Facebook page. Surprisingly, the Facebook page is called Picture the Scene Podcast. And there's also a discussion group on Facebook called Picture the Scene Podcast Discussion Group. Now, please do come and join me. I'm the only person on at the moment. Come and keep me company. Say hello. Now, additionally, if you're a user on Twitter or Instagram, please give us a follow. We can be found on both both of those mediums within the moniker Scene Pod. That's all one word. That's S-C-E-N-E-P-O-D. And I'll put all this in the episode description if I can figure out how to do that. I've not got that far yet. Now that's over with, let's get back to today's story. If it's safe to do so, so don't do this if you're driving, relax. Close your eyes and picture the scene. I want you to picture the warm feeling that you get on your gloved hands, which contrasts with the cold air against your cheeks. I want you to picture in your mind the sound of children's laughter and that's mixed in with a crackling of a bonfire. That smell of fried onions, that unmistakable smell that makes you want one more hot dog when you've already eaten far too many and all your troubles are momentarily forgotten. All you're thinking about is, do I need ketchup or do I need mustard? Are distant memories of long gone bonfire nights appearing in your minds? I can imagine for some of you at least they are. For the son and partner of Michaela Haig, however, for the last 20 years, Bonfire Night can only bring back painful memories of the night they lost their mother and partner, respectively. On this fateful night in 2001, Michaela Haig was a 25-year-old woman with a loving partner and a 5-year-old son. Just like many young couples with a small child, the evening for Michaela had started just like the evening had started for many other young families. She had enjoyed some fireworks with her partner and her son in her home, which was in the Pittsmore area of Sheffield, which is a city in the north of England, in Yorkshire to be exact. Coincidentally, 
I'm from Sheffield, and at one point in my past, I have lived in the Pismore area, so I know the area quite well. I, however, didn't know this this case and I start, so until I started investigating it. And Pittsmore, well, it has a reputation for being one of the rougher areas of Sheffield, with gang count crime high and frequent, drug use high and frequent. But speaking from personal experience, like many areas across the UK and across the world, it has plenty of good people who are decent and they're just trying to do their best with what they have in life. So, back to November the 5th, 2001. The night has started well for Michaela. She had enjoyed some quality time with her family, but then she had to go to work. And Michaela, like many other women and men around the UK and worldwide, she was a sex worker. It has widely been reported that Michaela had turned to prostitution due to drug abuse, a heroin addiction to be exact. Back in 2001, in the Sheffield area, around Bower Street, which was one of the red light districts in the city at the time, that was where Michaela was known to work, both on the night in question and for the previous six months roughly. It was just after 7pm when Michaela was last seen before she was attacked. On Bower Street, it was believed that this is where she was picked up by a soon-to-be assailant. Quite often, there are never any witnesses to crimes against sex workers. But as we'll find out in a few minutes, we have a key witness to this crime. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. So Michaela was last seen around 7pm on Bower Street and she was seen getting into an old style Ford Sierra that was blue and had a roof rack on it. Now the witnesses, and this is rather specific, so the driver was wearing an old fashioned nightcap. Now I want to photograph one of these on the social media platforms but uh, so you know what I'm talking about, we'll just try to describe one. It's like a hat you see Santa's elsewhere in films where it covers the diameter of your head, and but they're quite long and they taper out into a point and they have a bobble on the end. So that's a really rather strange hat to be wearing, especially if you're going to go off to kill someone. But the witnesses said that he was. Now, Nothing is known of her whereabouts after that moment until she was found in a car park in the Spitalfields area of, of Sheffield. Now, this car park is well known, or was well known, as a place that sex workers took their customers to perform whatever acts they had agreed to perform on them. So she was discovered, injured, but importantly still alive, by another sex worker around an hour later at 8pm in that car park. The police and ambulance service were quickly notified and they attended the scene. Now it doesn't matter what a person's profession is, they deserve to be able to not have the fear of violence or death when they go about their jobs. Irrespective if you personally agree or disagree with how they've how they're earning the money, they deserve to be feel safe and not have the fear of fear of violence or death. Now unfortunately for Michaela as it has been for many other sex workers, both past, present, and in the future, they can never be assured in the knowledge that they have a safe environment to work in. And that's a sad indictment of our society. Maybe one day that won't be the case. But we're looking at a very short time frame here. She was last seen at around 7pm and was found at around 8pm. 
Now credit goes and is given widely to a PC Richard Twig, who was one of the first police officers on the scene. Now earlier I mentioned that we had a key witness to this crime. It wasn't the people I'd seen her get into the car, although obviously they were still vital as all information is helpful. The key witness was Michaela herself. One detail I've left out so far, but it's probably worth mentioning at this point, is that Michaela suffered 19 stab wounds. That's right, 19. Can you comprehend that? They were all on her back and neck. So picture the scene. You've just been brutally attacked, physically and quite possibly sexually too. If you stab 19 times, you're still able to give a description of the attacker. How, how amazing is that? The strength of that woman. So PC Twig, again credit where credit is due, knew that not only was this essential information, he, he probably thought that she may never be able to give this again. So his quick thinking led him to record everything Michaela said with a biro on his hand. I'll include the picture of his hand with the notes on the social media platform for you to check out. The description she was able to give was that of a white male, around 38 years old, about 6 foot tall, clean shaven, and he wore blue fleece, glasses and a wedding ring. I'll do that again. The description she was able to give was that of a white male, around 38 years old, around 6 feet tall, clean shaven, and he wore blue fleece, glasses and a wedding ring. Now PC Twig was quoted as saying this, and I quote, I could see she was in a bad way, but she was able to give me a very brief description of the man and his car. So picture the scene. Michaela is picked up around 7pm in what witnesses describe as an old style Sierra that was blue and had a roof rack on it by a man who was wearing an old style nightcap hat. That man was white, around 38 years old and 6 foot tall, clean shaven, wearing a wedding ring, blue fleece and he had glasses on. The assumption has to be Michaela took him to the car park that was known to be a place sex workers took their clients to and then she was attacked, stabbed 19 times. So just think about that. Not only was she stabbed 19 times, but in a subsequent post-mortem, it showed it was the older stab wounds were on her back and neck and the post-mortem uh, concluded that she was most likely stabbed when she was already laying face down on the ground. So imagine the mindset of a person to do that. I can't comprehend that, can you? Not only to attack someone so viciously, but to do it while they're already down, they're already beaten and defenseless, to then stab them 19 times. So what strength Michaela must have had to hold on, to not only stay alive, but to give a description of her attacker. Michaela was taken to the Northern General Hospital, which is the nearest hospital. It's not that far actually from where she was found, and she was operated on as they tried to save her life. Twice she was resuscitated, but on the third time she couldn't be resuscitated and was pronounced dead at 11.05pm. Interestingly, when the in inquest was held, the pathologist that examined Michaela's body a Dr. Peter Cooper said in his findings that he didn't believe her wounds were necessarily fatal and that quite often patients with worse injuries than Michaela had survived. It's quite sad to think that Michaela went above and beyond to fight to stay alive 
to give a description of her attacker, yet she still managed to die in hospital. Now, was that the fault of the hospital? Despite the testimony of Dr. Peter Cooper, the coroner, who was Chris Doris, was leading the inquest, and he came to the conclusion in the inquest that while there were a number of incidents that had individual failings of the people who dealt with Michaela, he could not find any evidence of systematic failings. He therefore recorded a verdict of unlawful killing. Rather than putting the blame on the hospital, he put the blame on the killer. He did note that he hoped that advances in technology would eventually lead to the identification of a killer. While it's not recorded anywhere, this would indicate, at least to me, that they did find something they thought one day may help, but they just didn't have the capability back then to process it. Now, I'll be honest, the finding of the coroner puzzled me a little bit, because if the coroner found several individual failings, how could he say that the hospital was not at fault? Well, it seems, after some further investigation, to find systematic failings, there has to be a pattern of conduct or repeated cold breaches, and in this case, there wasn't. It was just an unfortunate chain of several mistakes all by separate individual people, all happening to the same patient. That's more than unfortunate if you ask me. Chris Welch, who at the time was a medical director for Sheffield Teaching Hospital's NHS Trust, said that his team had conducted a thorough review of Michaela's case, which had led them to strengthen their procedures and protocols. The failures that did occur, and I'm gonna quote him here, did not amount individually or collectively to a gross failure to provide basic medical attention. I'll leave that with you and to decide and if you think that was fair or not for Michaela. But back to the investigation. The police acted quickly on this one, with roadblocks being put in place that night to interview drivers and they painstakingly searched the DVLA and they ended up eventually eliminating 3,662 owners or drivers of Ford Sierras. The police also pursued more than 10,500 separate lines of inquiry and they interviewed over 7,400 people. It's unfortunate that it was such a popular make and model of a car at the time. They really were looking for needs in a haystack. They also were able to identify all the regular customers and speak to other sex workers who worked in the area as well as other men who regularly visited the area but it all came to nothing. Now, I found this quite interesting because you think, how do they speak to the regular customers? These men are not going to come forward and openly say, yes, I regularly pay this woman for sex. But they managed to speak to all the regular customers because they put up a very public threat to them all. And they said that if they didn't voluntarily go to the police to give a statement, they would track them down and they would visit them at home and reveal it to their partners and families. Now, if that was legal or moral, who knows, but that's what they said. They also liaised with police forces from across the country looking for possible links with other prostitute murderers. They also managed to get Michaela's murder featured on Crime Watch with a £5,000 reward. Now, shout out to Mark from Red. I know he loves Crime Watch. And Crime Watch was at the time a hugely popular nationwide television show in the UK that featured unsolved crimes with a view that a viewer or viewers could help. But even, even if you have crime watch with a £5,000 reward, 
fail to produce any tangible leads. In 2003, they launched another appeal to try to get people to remember any detail that they might that might help them. In 2005, it was reported that they had arrested a man from Workshop, which is a town close to Sheffield. But it was reported that he was soon released not long after his arrest with no charges. And I could find no more information on that. In 2006, Chief Superintendent Paul Broadbent, who was leading the inquiry into her death, was quoted as saying this in a fresh appeal for new information. He said, Five years down the line, there is still a relentless desire, will and need to arrest the person who brutally attacked and killed Michaela. We have items of clothing that Michaela gave us at the time. We also have other forensic opportunities and we have got CCTV footage that I am fully confident that in the fullness of time will assist us in identifying who killed Michaela. Paul Broadbent said that he wanted to be the one to charge the killer when a killer was found. So it sounds like he took this quite personally. And so would I. This was brutal. He also went on to say in an interview that Michaela's family wanted to do a personal appeal, but he was quoted as saying they were still, and I quote Paul on this one, too devastated and it is still too raw for them. And I can imagine it would be even five years down the line to lose your partner, to lose your mother, to lose your daughter, in such a manner as well. Now, in 2009, Peter McDonough, who is a convicted rapist, he was briefly named as a, as a suspect, but he was never charged. And interestingly enough, and I could only find one source for this, but they stated that in a separate incident when Peter McDonough absconded from a bail hospital and the police put out an appeal for people to find him. They described him, him as having an Irish accent. Now you'd think that Michaela would mention that. If she could mention the details that he had a blue fleece on, you think he'd mention, she'd mention that he was Irish. So maybe it was never him. Now, in 2011, in a fresh appeal for information to mark the 10-year anniversary of the death of Michaela, Michaela's partner spoke out for the first time, saying that her death had not only destroyed him, but their son and her family. He also pleaded for anyone with any information to come forward, and he said this, Give him up. He's a killer. He's had 10 years of freedom he should never have had. He went on to explain... How his son had never had a chance to be brought by his mother because of this and finished his plea saying this one minute she was setting up fireworks the next minute she was gone forever by 2011 i guess paul broadbread lost his chance to charge a killer because now the inquiry was led by detective superintendent lisa ray and she had this to say we do have some dna profiles and we are now working hard to try and identify whose dna this is we are looking for these people. It may be the offender or it may be witnesses. So it seems the coroner was right. Right, Time did lead to advancements to identify DNA, potentially from the killer. When the car park Michaela was found in, was put for notice of demolition years later to make way for a new ring road, the police took the time to go back to it and examine every inch of it just in case they found new evidence.
Now, this sounds like a long shot, but I think it shows that they were serious about finding the killer. They didn't just forget about it. They didn't find any evidence, unfortunately, or they didn't release any information that they had. In 2019, on the 18th anniversary of her death, it was revealed that McKayla's murder was one of 36 unsolved cases on the books of the South Yorkshire Police's major incident review team, which is a team that concentrates on unsolved murders and rapes. They were quoted as saying in 2019, the death of Michaela Haig remains under continued review by our major incident review team, as do all other undetected homicide investigations. We take any new information, intelligence, or lines of inquiry seriously and allocate resources to look into them accordingly. As always, anyone with information is encouraged to contact us. Now, unfortunately, to me at least, this sounds less promising than the last two quotes. It sounds like they are happy to investigate any information, but they don't have any information to investigate at the moment. Nothing new. Um, and it sounds a lot less promising than the quotes from 2011 and 2006. It's disappointing, but I guess predictable. The longer a crime goes unsolved, the harder it is to solve it. Now, in 2020, they launched yet another appeal for new information, but this time it received hardly any publicity. Now, rumours were abound earlier this year that Gary Allen, who was convicted this year for the murders of Elena Grakova, who was aged 38 at the time, and she was murdered in Rotherham. Now, Rotherham is a town right next to Sheffield, and when I say right next to Sheffield, I mean it's literally you leave Sheffield and you enter Rotherham and also and that was in 2018 then also of the murder of samantha class who was 29 at the time and she was killed in hull and she was killed in 1997. now gary was 47 this year so that would make him 27 at the time of michaela's death which is a lot younger than what michaela had described but it didn't rule him out completely and gary had actually now why would you say this even if he meant it, and he obviously meant it, but he openly told probation workers in prison. So he didn't tell, like, fellow prisoners. And it's, this is not prisoners trying to get the stereotypical time off for grasping on their fellow inmates. He actually told probation workers in prison that sex workers were scum and the lowest of the low. He also admitted to having regular violent fantasies that involved sex workers. And he stated, and I'm quoting him here, I like to frighten them. I like to cause pain. I like to make them cry. I like blood. I like to hurt them. I enjoy it. It makes me feel good. While detectives, and I think this is stating the bloody obvious, but while detectives said they believe Gary Allen killed other sex workers, and they were actively investigating that, they did rule him out of Michaela's death because at the time he was serving five and a half years in prison. Guess what for? For attacking two sex workers in Plymouth. He really does have a hatred for them. Now, unfortunately, it seems Michaela's murder has hit a blockade, a dead end. Well, the motivation is there from the police to find her killers, there just seems to be no evidence. Now, I find this very hard to believe. If you're listening to this and you're from the area, 
maybe you're not even from the area. People do travel to kill. Were you married to a man in his mid to late 30s in 2001? Did he wear glasses? Was he about six foot tall and clean shaven? Now just think to yourself, could it be him? Do you know someone like that? Surely, with such a distinctive description. Now forget about the Ford Sierra, that may be him or it may not be. But if you do know something like that, and he drove a Ford Sierra, then what, two and two makes four possibly? But just that description, that came from Michaela herself. That's not an eyewitness. That's not second-hand news. That came from Michaela's dying breath. So think to yourself, do you know a person like that? And I want you to picture the scene. I want you to picture the scene that someone you love, someone you care for, someone who may just be doing their best to survive, to get on in life, to keep their head above water. One minute they're there, the next minute they're gone forever. And thank you. Now that was my very first episode. It took me a while to record that. I've suddenly realised that I can't say words that I've been saying for many decades. But we've got there. Now, I hope you enjoyed this. And if you didn't, bear with me. My first one, I'm sure I'll get better. And please do give me a like on social media. Tell your fellow true crime podcast fans about me. And let them give me a listen. Give me some feedback. Send me a message on Facebook, Twitter, or whatever you use. And let me know. I'm open for suggestions for cases as well. Now, I hope to bring you a new case at least every two weeks. Sometimes more often. But it'll be at least every two weeks. So, next time you read about true crime that happens next time you read about a cold case I want you to picture the scene I want you put to put yourself in the shoes of the victim because only when we can and I mean we as a society emphasize with victims and realize what they felt can we put a stop to these crimes? Now, my name's Andrew. Thank you for listening and take care.